Welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, personal finance, investing, and entrepreneurship. Whether this is your first time here or you're an avid listener, we're thrilled to have you a part of our community. Our goal is to share successful stories of entrepreneurs and investors in the hopes that these stories inspire you along your journey towards financial freedom. We discuss successes, failures, systems, motivations, experiences, and key lessons learned over time. After each episode, you should feel motivated, empowered, and prepared to take action in your own life. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod, where we post daily content, personal finance tips, and document our own journey towards financial freedom. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice Podcast. As always, it's your boys, Ryan and Corey here with another episode for you. Today, we had on an absolute beast for a guest. He just blew our minds with how much expertise and knowledge he had in real estate investing. Um, his name is Axel Ragnarsson, and he is, like I said, an expert in multifamily real estate investing. Absolute stud. I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite episodes to date by far. It was such an incredible episode. And I think we're probably at like an hour, 45 minutes. It's it's long, but he's at Multifamily Wealth on Instagram if you want to check him out there. But this guy, when you talk about market knowledge and knowledge of what he's doing, the the word expertise doesn't even really like it doesn't do justice on like how well-spoken, articulate, and just actionable tactics and advice for people to take. He has 100 multifamily units, over 100 personally, and then 300 plus with partners. And he's the founder of Aligned Real Estate Partners. Um, he kind of documents his journey on social media, like I said, at Multifamily Wealth. And then he has the Multifamily Wealth podcast that we touched briefly on here. But the guy... He's 27 and he, it feels like he's been doing this for 25 years, just the way that he speaks about the business. And we talked not just about his business, about, we talked about the future of real estate investing. Like what is, what is it going to look like? What are his takes on that? And I just, I mean, we were true. You'll tell in our voices in the episode, we're truly inspired by somebody who just, who he does this, this is what he does. Like, this is his thing. You know, it's like, there's certain people that you listen to in this world that are like, oh, this is just their thing. And he, he, multifamily real estate is, is Axel. This is what he was born to do. Like, I feel truly. like that. I really feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. He found his purpose and it just truly inspired us. You know, you, as Corey said, you can hear it in our voices throughout the, pretty much the entire episode, but we'll keep this guy on our network for a long get a, time. Get a piece of paper out and pen or 20. Yeah. Just, just get ready to fire some notes off. I mean, we're going to go back and re-listen this episode probably five times each. So without further ado, let's bring in Axel. Axel, officially welcome to the show. Corey and I are absolutely thrilled to have you on. Um, selfishly, one New England guy to another. I am thrilled to have you on here to crack heads on real estate a little bit and just uh, give people a different perspective on how a young guy can scale a crazy portfolio to, well, I don't want to give it away, but to, to great length. So thanks so much for coming on the show. We're happy to have you. Yeah. I appreciate you guys having me. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So if you could just give us a background on how you actually got into real estate and like what sparked the, the light bulb for you is like, Hey, real estate is going to be my, my future here. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, um, I'll start, I'll start early and kind of fly through a lot of the early stuff, but, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, New England guy, I was born in Southern New Hampshire, uh, grew up in Southern New Hampshire, went to college in New Hampshire, and, uh, and then shortly moved to Boston. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, I was exposed to entrepreneurship pretty early. Uh, my dad's an immigrant. He's from Sweden. And him and my mom started a wood chipping business out of all things. So it was 
completely unrelated to real estate and kind of out of left field, but, you know, they were in the business and I was kind of around that from an early age. And, um, you know, I was always had the entrepreneurial bug. I was, I was the guy that was buying and selling Xboxes on Craigslist in high school and, you know, doing all doing anything outside of working a job to make some money. And, um, in college, late high school, early college, um, that, you know, that quote unquote side hustler business evolved to flipping cars. So I was buying and selling used cars, um, and, and making a couple of bucks doing that. And at some point I was like, all right, what, what comes next? You know, what can I buy and sell that's bigger or, you know, what do other people doing as a side hustle to make money? And, you know, probably through YouTube, just Google and stuff, uh, stumbled upon flipping houses just as a way to make some money. And for me, I was like, you know, this was kind of sophomore year of college. I was, you know, 19 or something like that. I was like, well, this seems really compelling. Um, you know, you buy a house for a couple hundred grand, you put, 50 grand into it and sell for 300, you make 50 grand. Like that's, you know, what, what beats that? And, uh, so I started diving into that strategy, right. And trying to learn all about how, you know, basically real estate, how you can flip houses. And I found bigger pockets, which I'm sure a lot of the real estate, um, focused listeners are probably familiar with bigger pockets, you know, the big real estate investing website and started listening to the podcast and all that. And while I'm learning about flipping houses, I stumble upon rental real estate and multifamily real estate and passive income, basically, you know, you buy a building, you have some, some tenants in it and they're paying your mortgage and, and you're taking some home and passive income at the end of the month. So that actually really stuck out to me. And I was like, maybe that's what I should be doing. That sounds like a way better deal. <laughs> you do the work once and then you get paid forever. So started learning all I could about rental real estate and small multifamily and just trying to figure out how I could buy a place. And, you know, this, this process goes on for over a year. And, um, I, at the time I had a, an internship with a really small investment group in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, and I was going out, you know, I was going to school at UNH out on the seacoast. And, um, basically once a month, it was like eight, 10, 12 guys I get in a room, they listen to entrepreneurs pitch. It was like kind of the, you know, a small version of like a big Boston, like angel investment group. It was kind of the small version of that up in Manchester. And, um, I connected with one of the guys through just LinkedIn and, and I was just bugging them on, you know, do you need someone to help you out? Can I get a job? Blah, blah, blah. And um, so basically they brought me on to take notes just for the meetings and help schedule entrepreneurs and do a bunch of administrative stuff. And I met a guy there who uh, did hard money lending for real estate. And so I just started chatting with him before and after the meetings and basically said, you know, Hey, if I bring you a deal that kind of looks like this, you know, it's two, three, four units, it's discounted purchase price, you know, it's off market, blah, blah, blah you know, what would the debt look like? You know, would you even be willing to loan me money? You know, what does that whole process look like? So, you know, over time I built this relationship with the guy and, um, you know, he told me, yeah, if you find a deal that looks like what you've described, I'd be open to lending on it. And, um, I think there was an element of, you know, for him, at least shepherding the next generation of, of business guys. Right. So I was out on Craigslist, just looking at for sale by owners and, emailing all the landlords that put up for rent ads, you know, asking them if they wanted to sell. And I was just trying to, you know, hustle and look at deals. And, um, I found a three unit deal in my hometown in Southern New Hampshire, um, on Craigslist. It's a couple hundred grand and, uh, brought it to him, showed him the numbers, you know, kind of pitched it to him and, uh, over, over coffee at a local coffee shop. And he was like, yeah, I'll give you 90% loan to value on that. Um, you bring 10% down and, you know, run with it. And, um, so I brought 10% down as every dime I had, which is not the strategy, right? That's stupid to do. So I always say that with like an asterisk, um, in my mind, I'm like, I'll max out a credit card for 90 days. If like a water heater goes or something like that, you know, I just wanted to get in the game. 
and um, so owned that for about a year and ended up selling it later on. Um, but that was like my first deal. And from there, um, you know, started just buying small multifamily properties over the first three, four years, you know, kind of 21 to 24, 25 years old, uh, grew a portfolio of about 60, 70 doors that, that I owned. Um, and then really the last two, two and a half years, I've been focused on scaling the business and buying bigger deals, um, raising some capital, u- utilizing some creative financing strategies to, to kind of pour gas in the fire. And, um, you know, now we're doing deals in a few different cities across the country. We own about 300 units. Um, half of that's with some partners. The other half is, is just me. And up in New Hampshire, we've got a property management company that manages our units. We manage third party. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're up to a bunch of stuff now and the business has certainly scaled in a, in a, you know, more of a hockey stick fashion recently, but, um, but yeah, that's the spark notes. <laughs> yeah. Love it, man. I'm, I'm curious. Do you feel like you could attribute your scaling ability to the networking and early on meeting people that helped carry you there? Like, what do you think it was that was able, because there's, you know, you can get involved in this game, but to scale it the way you did, like it takes something extra. And I'm curious what you think that might be for you. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think um, there's a, there's a common misconception as it relates to buying just a lot of real estate, right. To scaling a buy and hold portfolio where you're buying just either a lot of real estate or, or, or large pieces of real estate. And most people think that it's a capital constraint, right? You know, you got to go put down 20, 25% down on all these projects. Eventually you just run out of money unless you have some high paying job or some business that allows you to keep funneling money into real estate. Um, for me, obviously that wasn't an option. I was a college kid and then I was out of college and making 50 grand a year working as a real estate agent for which I only did for about a year. And so there wasn't like a lot of, there wasn't a lot of income there to funnel into real estate. So for me, it was a relentless focus on finding really, really good deals. Um, you know, and I, I leveraged a bunch of strategies to go get in front of sellers, you know, whether it's direct mail or, you know, just reaching out over email, cold calling, cold texting, all of these different things to get in front of owners. And, and basically, you know, for me, I was like, I, the only way that I can scale this business and, and by scale, by a higher volume of properties, quickly grow the unit count is I have to buy deals below market value when I go in so I can refinance my money out in six months, nine months, 12 months. And, you know, it's just, you have to have a relentless focus on just the concept of just the velocity of money. You know, you can't go put your 25% down, pay market and just, you know, your goal can't be, I'll collect the cash flow from that. And after three, four years, I'll have earned enough in cash flow where I'll go buy another one. Like you can do that and that's fine, but it's not, you can't scale with that as a strategy. You have to buy something 20, 25% below market, own it for six months, go to another bank, do a cash or refinance, get your money back out, go put it into another deal. Right. So for me, it was always a relentless focus on great deals. I'm going to get my money out as quick as I possibly can, and then go put it into something else. And once you do that, you get to, you know, 10, 15, 20 units that you personally own pretty quickly. And then once you're at that 20 unit mark, you know, your, your properties just by, just by way of appreciating and cash flow, then, then the beast starts to grow at a much more exponential pace. Um, so that was really step one was just understanding that, the entire name of the game is buying deals at the right price. Like that's, that's like the equivalent of putting your pants on before you leave the house in the morning. If you want to scale a real estate business, like you just have to do that. And then after that, you know, where we started buying larger deals was we married that focus with raising investor capital and bringing investors into our deals. And, um, and that way I had less of my own capital in deals. So we were able to do a higher volume of deals and, uh, and that allowed us to get into more projects in a little bit of a faster pace. 
Well, this is really interesting to hear from a perspective of people who have, you know, one fiftieth the amount of units that you have, uh, because what we've noticed and and we've talked to other investors about this is that it's not to knock buying single family, multi small, like really small multifamily duplex, triplex, quadplex, but we Ryan and I have only actually value added one property and we were able to rent it at a really high rent and get a good return on it. But we're noticing is like, we're not able to take the cash flow from our seven units and drive it into new deals. Like it's not, we're not making that much money. We're making less than we thought that we were going to make. And it's still cash flowing. The pums have appreciated. It's the best decision we ever made, but we're not able to take that money and automatically reinvest it if we didn't force appreciate and pull the money back out. And that is something that we've learned kind of the not the hard way, but we're like, oh, okay, this is not just going to like snowball unless we really do a lot of value add. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. We had to shift gears and, and go towards our primary homes. Right. And we to took money. out HELOCs, right. Just to, just to start using some of that cash and becoming our own banks. It's a different way of doing it. Right. But it goes to your point. Once again, you have to use the assets you have to start playing around and, and getting further into the game and start uh, and start scaling. I want to touch on one point and, and can you speak to delegating and how that's allowed you to scale your portfolio? I know we briefly talked about another gentleman we know who just is on a different stratosphere and, and kind of in your, your wavelength here, or your, your, I guess in your galaxy, but um, I want to talk about delegation and how important you feel that is to scale one's portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's kind of two, two levers you can pull, right. Um, in any business, right. But specifically a real estate business, you have, you know, you can use financial leverage debt, you know, using other people's capital, which we all kind of implicitly understand, but then there's also human leverage, right? Bringing other people in to take tasks off your plate. So you can focus on the value add activities, which is finding deals and raising money. That that's all that matters, right? In a real estate business is those two activities. And if you're not raising money, you need to be making more money doing whatever is your highest income producing activity. So um, anything that you can do to take things off your plate that aren't that is, is pretty critical. So for me early on, you know, the, the lowest hanging fruit for a real estate investor is just bringing in a property management company. Like that's the lowest hanging fruit. So if you're a real estate investor, you know, self-manage up to six, seven, 10 doors, maybe, and then hire a management company. Everyone is so cost focused, not upside focused with that decision. Everyone's like, why would I pay them nine, 10%? I can do it myself. Well, you're going to pay them to do that because that's what they do every single day, all of the time. And they're literal experts in that specific part of the business. You are not. If you own 10 units, you know, one hundredth of what your property management company knows if they own, you know, if they manage a few hundred units and everyone's like, no one's going to take care of my property like I do. Well, with that attitude, you're not freeing up your mental bandwidth to go look for more deals, which is where the money is. Your money is in doing deals. It's in buying and selling. It's in refinancing. It's in doing all of those different things. It's not in property management. So that's kind of like the low hanging fruit. And then above that, it's finding someone to help you do the low hanging deal finding activities. So one of the first people that I brought into our business was an intern and we still work together today. I mean, now we partner on deals. Um, but he's a young college kid. He wanted to go, you know, learn how to find deals. And, and basically I was like, Hey man, I'll show you exactly what I do to find deals. If you do it, you know, and you bring something to me, I'll pay you 1% of what you find. And, and then I basically outsourced a lot of what I did to find deals onto his plate. So something that he was doing was replying to for rent ads, um, you know, from a company email that I had, you know, it was acquisitions at Brickleaf properties, which was the name of my company at the time. It's now aligned real estate partners, but Basically, he was sending it from an email I owned, reaching out to for sale by owners, reaching out to you know owners that are listing their property for rent. I also skipped, you know, basically bought a data list of all the properties that we wanted to target and the owners we wanted to reach. 
got their emails, gave it to them and said, Hey, you know, reach out to all these owners, call these owners. And basically I put all of the acquisitions pipeline development onto his plate so that my role in that process wasn't the, it's a $5 an hour task. A virtual assistant could do it of like sending templated emails to owners on for rent ads. Like that's not a good use of your time as a real estate investor. So stuff like that, that you can get off your plate. And then you can just look at the deals where, you know, an owner raised their hand and said, Hey, I'd actually be interested in hearing an offer. And, you know, you get on the phone with them and, and uh, you know, your VA or an intern or someone helping you out with this. Um, and then you can, you know, basically work through a, a much higher number of deals. Um, you know, and the other thing for me early on, which may not be applicable to everybody, but was um, finding someone to help me, um, you know, kind of project to manage. So I, I got to a point to where, you know, it was like 50, 60 doors. And basically there's a lot of financial report reviews, even if you're getting them from your property management company and they're, and they're very, you know, templated and they look nice, basically getting all of that data into some Excel sheets so that we can see how our properties are performing based on how we projected um, getting somebody when we went under contract on a deal to go and, you know, work through all the transactional things, emailing the insurance broker, emailing our attorney to put together an LLC, you know, emailing the closing company, the, you know, information on the, the lender and this emailing the lender, all of our documents, all of that stuff is like extremely time consuming. And you don't realize it until you got a couple of deals going on and you're like, damn, this is like most of my week. Yeah. Um, so I brought on somebody virtually and systematized that process to help me with that. Uh, so for me, those were the, you know, the first two is property management company, somebody to help find deals, somebody to help manage the transactions. And, um, and now we have, you know, I have some folks helping out with content related stuff, which is, you know, kind of outside of real estate, but um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what the, what the team looks like at this point. That's incredible. I think, so we hear, we hear this semi often and just like the, the at the art of delegation is key. Right. And then we're like, Oh, go hire a virtual assistant or go hire an assistant or an employee. Can you tell us, just give us the elementary, like how, like, where do you find yeah. these people? We've heard Fiverr before, but is there a pool or a place where people are just located where you can go and, and interview them and, and kind of pluck the cream of the crop? It's a great question. It took me, and just to agree with what you're saying, it took me three years of people saying, get a VA, get a VA, get a VA for me to be like, all right, yeah, I should get a VA. Like I could have used one three, four years ago and I just never did it. Cause I had this weird internal bias of like, oh, they're remote. It's kind of hard to delegate that. And, um, you know, the, the biggest challenge with delegation I found, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to your question too, is there's the mental, you have, you have to get over the mental hurdle of, this is going to be a significant time investment for the next couple of weeks. And it's, and it's basically, I'm going to lose productivity for a couple of weeks and you kind of go below the, you know, the, the middle point on the graph. And then once it's delegated, you have a significant upswing in productivity. Most people can't, they don't have the discipline to get through that two week period where you're training, where you're putting together all the process documents, where you're you know on the phone a few times a week, walking someone through how to do tasks. And, and it's literally just that two week process of like, oh, I might as well just do it myself. I might as well do it myself. But if you can get past that two weeks, you know, then you actually get so much of your time back. And it was really hard for me to do that. But um, as for where to find VAs, um, I found them in a couple of places. Uh, onlinejobs.ph is the biggest one. I think it's the most well-known and respected website. Um, you know, basically you can go there, post a job. Um, you know, you want to be really diligent with your screening. And there's a ton of videos on the site about, how to screen virtual assistants, how to work with virtual assistants, how to pay virtual assistants, um, you know, all of these different things. So as a site, they actually provide a bunch of great training resources. So it's kind of like a one-stop shop. Um, it's almost like a zip recruiter or an indeed for virtual assistants. And the other thing that's possible 
or that people do is they go through kind of like a VA staffing agency where basically there's a company and their whole responsibility role, you know, value proposition is they're going to go out, source the VAs, train them up a little bit, make sure they're, you know, fluent in English, make sure they're, they got good internet connection that, you know, that they got a good setup and then they'll go in and basically tee up a few of you, a few of them for you to interview. And then, you know, basically you're paying just, you're paying eight to $10 an hour, maybe versus four to $5 and they're earning the arbitrage. Um, so if you want a real turnkey service, that's a, a good route to go. Um, there's a, a bunch of those firms. A lot of those firms are like specific to different industries. Um, you know, so there's a lot of real estate focused firms that do that. Um, Reva Global, R-E-V-A Global is run by a guy named Bob Lachance. That's like a really big one for, for folks that are trying to bring in somebody to help them with real estate. Uh, another one is Rocket Station. That's more of a general business one. And they're a little bit more expensive. What I would say is I went with one of the third party or the, you know, the staffing firms. And I didn't need to do that because like I implicitly had everything trained up and I had all the processes you know put together. And if you sign up with one of those services, it's just much more expensive. You're going to pay 2x the hourly rate typically that the VA is making. And, you know, I think you're personally better off going to onlinejobs.ph paying a, a VA six, $7 an hour, maybe $8 an hour. Like that gets you like a college educate, college educated, fluent in English, highly, highly trained individual versus going and paying like $10 an hour to like a staffing firm. Right. I think you get more bang for your buck if you just learn it on your own. And, and then from there, it's, you know, just, uh, it's just management, like in any company, right. Have a couple meetings a week where you're checking in, making sure everything's on track, you know, use Slack, use some kind of messaging tool, um, use loom video to record, you know, videos and overviews of how you're doing tasks and send the, you know, create some kind of document library in Google drive where you have loom videos on how to do all these different things that they're going to do. Um, and then it's just a, a leap of faith for a lot of the U S based folks that are like, you know, I don't know, you know, there's just kind of this limiting belief that they're not, that they're not as qualified as us, uh, us talent, but, um, in our property management company. So I don't work with her specifically, but, uh, you know, our, our partner in our property management firm works with her. She's a CPA, like she's a VA, she's a CPA in the Philippines, like a master's degree in finance. Like she's as good as anyone that we can hire around here. Um, and she runs all of her books. She gives us our KPIs. You know, she, she tees up all of this important stuff. She balances our records on the back end. So I think, um, you know, th that was a lot. I probably went too long there, but there's a, there's a number of different resources, a number of different places you can go. And it's just a matter of, of understanding that, um, you know, that you'll figure it out you know, as you get into it, you'll figure it out. Uh, first of all, thank you. That was probably the, the best seven minutes of education we've gotten a long time and just how to do something. So for those who are listening, wind that back, re-listen again, because I know that you gave like four to five sites to pretty much help you automate your business. And so we've been asked, this we're on episode over a hundred and no one has maybe. given us that precise walkthrough. So thank you very much. I know Corey has one for you. Yeah. Well, first of all, we are venturing into some like e-commerce business that we've talked about on previous episodes and the individual who runs the company hires out their VAs uh, to, I don't know where they hire them out to, but they're on point. They are running the ship. And anytime we have a question, boom, 30 seconds, we have an answer. So like, mm -hmm. and what I can tell based on their phone numbers and stuff that, you know, you, we use some apps and stuff, but they're on, they're on their shit. So it's really, it's, um, it's good to know that you can do this and you don't have to overthink the qualification process of it. So I want to actually segue to markets. Can you talk to all the other markets you ventured into and then, and like how you've gotten into them, right? We always talk about investing out of state, but it's just like, how do you find the right people and the right teams 
and the right market to get into and to, to make it profitable. To you. give people an idea before you jump in, we're talking Indiana. From what I have, you probably, since I've done this research, you're probably in more <laughs> markets just knowing you. New, uh, New Hampshire, Indiana, Florida, uh, and Arizona. It looks like you have in two. This is the numbers. You tell me if I'm wrong. It looks like 23 units in Indiana. And this is just in 2021 alone that you've added 23 units in Indiana, 67 in New Hampshire, 44 in Florida, 204 in Arizona. That might not even be accurate anymore, but like, I didn't mean to cut you off. I know you're about to jump in, but to be able to scale like that all the way across the United States, there's gotta be something specific about these markets that you're finding. So if you could elaborate there, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that, that is up to date. We, we got a couple of deals under contract in Florida that are both about 45 units. So that number is going to bump up here in a little bit, but um, the, I'm going to, so I always take this question a couple of ways. And I think on podcasts, you kind of get this very stereotypical, we like Florida because there's population growth, there's job growth, there's income growth. And it's like, yeah, okay. We all get that. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take it a different way because that is, and let me just say that is a reason why we like those markets. You know, obviously people are moving to Florida, people are moving um, to Arizona and we, you know, we're a partner in a deal in Texas, right? People are moving to Texas. You know, people are also moving to Indianapolis less so than they are, you know, some of the Southeastern states, but they're still heading out there and, you know, and there's income growth and job growth out there as well. Um, and fun fact uh, for all of those who are familiar with the Northeast, New Hampshire is the only state with positive population growth and all of the Northeast U S. So that includes, pretty much Virginia North, um, which is a, a wild stat that I didn't realize, but, um, either. Wow. yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty wild stuff. So all of that stuff, check all the boxes. We're, we're good there. Um, for me, when I go, when I, when I went out of state, I had a lot of challenges because I got the shiny object syndrome. Like a lot of people do where you hear about people doing deals in Texas and North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, Florida. And every time somebody does a deal, you're like, Oh, maybe I should go look over there. But after a while I realized like you absolutely have to just narrow down your focus and plant deep seeds in fewer markets versus shallow seeds in a lot of different ones. Um, so for me, I was like, I'm going to look in central Florida. And the reason I thought about central Florida was because there's a city there called Lakeland that was very similar to Manchester in the size, in the pricing, in the types of tenants that live there and all of these different, re, you know, basically all these different attributes that made it a, a very similar market to what I was very familiar with. So there wasn't like a big learning curve. It wasn't like going from, a market where properties are 80,000 a door to a market, you know, where properties are $175,000 a door or something like that. Right. We have to, not only are you learning a new geographical area, you're now learning a whole new financial investment in terms of the, the price points. So for me, I narrowed down there and then I narrowed down on Indy for a lot of the same reasons, just price point, similar tenant class, all of these different things. And the big question for me became where can I like actually compete? Um, you know, and I think that people forget that in real estate, you have competition like any other business. Like if I go and try and buy property in Tampa, Florida, and I'm from Boston, like I'm competing with people from Tampa. I'm competing with people from Boston, New York city, the entire state of Florida, from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Los Angeles, from Houston. Like I'm competing with people literally from everywhere on, you know, if a, a 10, 30, hundred unit deal hits the market in Tampa, there is exponentially more eyeballs on that opportunity. than if I go just 45 minutes inland to a city called Lakeland, which is smaller. It's about a hundred thousand people. It's similar to Manchester in size. Um, I just have significantly less buyer competition there. So I have a better chance of actually taking down a really good deal of actually buying something at a competitive price and actually like making it worth my time to go do all this. Right. So, so that was kind of number one. Number two is I need something that's a close flight. Um, cause you got to go there. I mean, for me, if I'm under contract on a deal, 
it's going to, you know, usually we're trying to do 10, 15 plus units at a minimum. And most of our stuff's 20 plus, like I'm going to go fly down there to do due diligence. And I'm also going to fly down there at various points throughout the year to get face to face with brokers, investors, lenders, all of these different people to better build that relationship. So for me going someplace that's a five plus hour flight away, just wasn't appealing because it would minimize the amount of time I'm there. And the more time I spend there, the more deals I get. So, you know, that was a big thing, obviously Tampa, you know, you find a Tampa, you drive to Lakeland, it's a two hour, 45 minute flight from Boston. Um, so that was a big thing too. And then as it relates to actually finding deals, you know, we, we have all those metrics that we like, there's not that there's not a, you know, as much competition as there are in a lot of the really popular markets we see on the news. And then three, it narrows down who the players are that you need to just become really good friends with. Like there's in Tampa, there might be seven, eight brokers that do all the business in Lakeland, there's three or four. So now I'm like, all right, I just got to go become best friends with those guys. Right. Um, and then it's also, you know, from a direct to seller standpoint, in terms of how we look at how we, you know, generate leads and talk to sellers. We do a lot of direct mail, a lot of direct outreach. Um, it's a smaller market to kind of bite off and chew. You know, there's just less records so we can afford to send direct mail there. We can afford to do stuff like that. And, um, and then from there, it's just building out a team. And I think people overestimate how hard it is to build out a team. It's just go to the people that do all the business, ask them for referrals. Like that's really, it's, it's very simple. You go to the people that own the property that own a hundred plus units, or you go to the broker that does most of the deals and say, Who's your go-to property management company? Who's your go-to lender? Who's your go-to insurance guy? And then those are the people that you use. Vet them if you want, but like there's a reason that all of these guys know each other. And then if you go ask the, the property management company for a referral, they're probably going to tell you the same broker, maybe like another one. They're probably going to tell you the same you know, mortgage broker. And eventually you get a spider web of referrals and you're like, all right, I got like these three, four, five people that you know, all of these other people have recommended those just must be the eight players. And then you just work with those folks. That was great. Yeah. Awesome. Cut right through the fat. Where are you getting the data on all these different markets? I know there's a bunch of different resources that people can use, but what do you use? Cause clearly it's working. Yeah. So city data.com is the really big site that gives you all of the demographic data, the income data, the job data, all that stuff that, you know, basically you do that to check off the box that, Hey, people are moving here. People are making more money here companies are moving here. Just you hit those three, the rest of it all takes care of itself. Um, that's kind of the macro level. And then from a more micro level in terms of crime and, you know, trying to get a good feel for like, you know, a neighborhood or something like that. Um, you know, so basically I'll, I'll, well, first of all, I guess I'll start with a couple of resources. We use neighborhood scout, which is a paid tool. Um, you don't necessarily have to pay for it, but it's a nice thing to have. ADT crime maps is a really good crime map tool. Um, and then there's, I mean, so truly it used to do crime maps and I think they might've stopped doing that. I think, I think they took that off their site, but I'm not totally sure if they still offer it truly, it has really good crime maps. So those are some sites that help out with that. But I think the best thing that you can do, if you're going to get serious about going into a new market, serious enough to where this is a market that you've really decided on. And, and I'd say that because before you start asking people to give you their time to help walk you through a, a property or a neighborhood or something like that, you should, you know, this should be a place that you actually really want to go look into to, to preserve those relationships. Cause the worst thing you can do is just ask a bunch of real estate brokers to walk you through, you know, Hey, what neighborhoods are good, what neighborhoods are bad, blah, blah, blah. And then you don't work with them. That can help that, you know, that can be tough in terms of a relationship standpoint, but the best thing you can do and the highest producing brokers probably aren't going to give you this time, but maybe you go find someone that's newer in their career, more like a junior agent, junior broker, somebody that's really looking to build their client list and say, Hey, can you take, 20, 25 minutes 
Um, you know, if it's a really experienced guy, I offer to pay them for their time, but just you bring up a map, a Google map of the whole city or wherever you're looking and you just literally go by, re- you know, zip code by zip code, region by region. And you just take notes over all these different parts of the map and say, Hey, North of, you know, you'll get this analogy because it's, because it's Boston, but you're like, all right, if I'm, if I'm West of 95 or like East, of, you know, if I'm West of 95 and I'm up in like Peabody, what, what, you know, neighborhoods are good, what neighborhoods are bad, you know, where, where are you finding that, you know, a lot of the deals are transacting. And if you pick a small enough market, you can pretty much narrow down and say, Hey, I don't really want to be in Northeast blank because, that's a pretty D class area, right? If I'm North of this street in this zip code, um, you know, but however, there's a new development going up West of this town and, and, you know, therefore there's a lot of great folks moving out in that direction. So-and-so is opening up a, a new branch there. So the best thing you can do is do this with a broker and then also a property management company. So a property management company is almost going to even be better at this than a broker is they're saying, Hey, we're seeing rents go up a ton in this little pocket. Right? So, you're never going to get the personal touch, obviously, from a website. That's going to give you some raw data that's helpful. But, you know, if somebody is like, hey, man, I want to learn more about Manchester. If you give me 10 minutes with, you know, you're looking at Google Maps, you print it out, you're taking some notes with a pen on the paper. Like, you'll know Manchester better than 95% of the people that live in Manchester in 10 minutes. So most, like, real estate brokers can do stuff like that. And that's going to greatly shortcut your, your you know, just learning uh, more about an area. That's a really good point to bring up. And I actually, I guess I underestimated the value of this. We had an investor and property manager do the exact thing with, with during, there's a state that we're interested in down South to invest in. And he literally took the time to pull up Google maps and point out each area that he thought was either appreciating, had solid rents, or there's a military base nearby. And just like a bunch of different things on why and why not to do these zip codes. And you know, now I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm like, damn, like we, that's someone you got to go pay to do something like that. You're not going to, he's, he's the ear to the streets. Right. So it was mm-hmm. really cool. And I think, um, just based on your example and, and your, uh, reference to do that, I think people really should take the time to do that because it, it is invaluable and it's going to save you some time from sitting there typing in a bunch of different zip codes online and trying to navigate these websites, like go straight to the source and trim out the fat. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And then, sorry, I'll just add one quick thing to that yeah. too. Um, and then most people are like, all right, well, let's say I get sent a deal or I'm looking at a deal and I'm like trying to figure out exactly, you know, how good it is. Maybe it's in an area that was on the fringe or something like that. Um, what happens next? And for me, usually it's, we look at the numbers, we look for the no in the numbers. If we can find a no in the numbers in terms of projected rents or in terms of some aspect of the deal, we put it away. However, if the numbers start to say yes, now we take it to the next level and we're like, okay, let's get a quick take on this neighborhood and we'll text our property management company and say, Hey, like, you know, I'm not asking you to give me a a detailed rundown of this area, but you know, one, two, three Cabot street and X, you know, area, quick, quick thoughts, two sentences. And, uh, you know, we try and be respectful of people's time. They're like, good area. There's a property down the street where there was just a crime, blah, blah, blah. And then we factored that in. and, And now we actually can get to the point to where we can, you know, make an offer and take it to the next step. Um, And then the other piece of it too, is that I should have mentioned when I talked about market selection, I knew some people that lived in Tampa, right? So it was a little bit easier for me to meant to conceptually, you know, go out and buy something in Lakeland. If, if, if a last ditch effort, if I had something on a contract or was getting close and I really wanted someone to just go drive by and look at the street, like I could call, you know, a friend of mine up and say, Hey man, I'll give you 40 bucks. If you take a trip out to Lakeland and just, you know, 
take a, take a video of the street or something like that. If you have somebody in a market that's willing to do that, that makes the whole thing so much easier. Um, and it's not really like you even need it. It's just from an emotional standpoint of like, Oh, a complete fallback plan. I have this person to go and meet so-and-so out there and I'll pay him for their time or whatever. Um, so I, I should have mentioned that back at the, at the high level market selection, part of the, part of the answer, but, um, but that's something that's really helpful too. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we talked about market selection and now I think within we're almost like diving in on like a, we're zooming in here. And now we talk, if we talk a little bit about property selection, I was listening to or I was on your Instagram and I was looking at one of your posts, I think from October, and you were talking about a specific property and being that you're a value add guy, I know there's certain value add boxes that you're looking to check off. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on these, because one of the ones that I, I, I kind of wrote these down as, as major value add boxes that you check off, that you know that when you buy this property, you can improve it and can be worth a lot more than when you first purchased it. And these things I'm going to list are, you mentioned retiring landlord, long-term tenants at below market rent, a C-class property in a C to B neighborhood, and then a replicable renovation scope or a straightforward renovation scope. So can you just, gi- can you just give elaborate on why maybe those, and if there are others, what other boxes that you're looking for when you try to narrow down from the market to the property specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you mentioned kind of the retiring landlord, um, you know, maybe it's mismanaged, maybe there's some deferred maintenance, I call I kind of call that the story, right? So anytime I'm looking at a deal, whether I'm chatting with an owner on the phone or whether, you know, uh, somebody else, another investor or broker calls me with a deal, I'm like, what's the story? Who owns this thing? Kind of, you know, give me the, give me the sense of, of what the backstory is. And, you know, if the, if the story starts with, oh, they bought it, you know, 18 months ago, they just invested a bunch of money into some of the units, you know, there's some room on the rents, but, you know, they've, they fixed up a lot of what was wrong. And, um, you know, and I'm like, all right, well, mentally, I'm already checked out on that deal because they've done my job for me. They do what I like to do. So now I'm, I'm starting to realize that unless there's something really out of whack, that's probably not going to be an opportunity. However, if I hear they bought it 10 years ago, um, you know, they, they've kind of let rents lag behind what the market's doing. You know, they're, they're, he's getting older, his kids don't really want to take it over. Now I'm like really intrigued. So I think it all starts with story. Anytime you get sent a deal, don't go right into the numbers. Talk about the conceptual story behind it. Cause that's going to tell you just as much as the numbers will. Uh, and then as for, you know, the attributes of some of the properties that we like to see, you know, it, it's funny. It's just age of the owner is like such a massive indication of motivation to sell. Um, and it's, and I think it's just something that's tied to if somebody's older and then, you know, usually that's paired with they've owned the property for a while, especially in the last few years, rents have been increasing so much that it's, it's hard for like really, really good real estate operators and investors to even keep up with the market. Like it's hard for people who are focused on this stuff every day to even keep up. So if somebody hasn't been keeping up and they've kind of just, you know, they've had their tenants, they haven't really been motivated to make a change because their mortgage has been getting paid. You know, next thing you know, they got a unit at $800 a month. That's should, you know, it's $1,100, a month unit. And there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and then from a, you know, as it relates to management, there's a lot of, you know, we call them mom and pop owners, but there's a lot of owners that, you know, either they don't use a management company or they're not on the ball themselves. And they're so cost focused. Everything's about minimizing costs. Everything's about saving money versus let me invest in the building. Hey, if I put 10 grand in my common areas, now I can get another $25 a month in rent on all of my 10 units. That's $250 a month over a year. That's almost three grand or, you know, whatever it is in value that has an immense, you know, effect on building value from a cap rate perspective. And I guess we can get into that too. But for me, it's all about figuring out how can we increase the net income of this property? Because 
typically for every dollar we increase the net income, there's a significantly outsized uh, result on just the value. Basically it affects the value in a significantly outsized way. So a lot of owners who are like, well, they're just afraid of vacancy, right? A, a, a unit going vacant for a month is like the worst thing ever. So they never raise the rents. They never really rock the boat. And in reality, like a really healthy real estate firm just builds in raises to their rents every year. And then they'll reevaluate even above and beyond that. If, if the market's going crazy and they stay on top of this stuff and they invest, they put money into their buildings because they know if money going into their buildings can even produce just an incremental bump in the rent that has massive implications on the value. So that's really what we look for. And then from a renovation perspective, um, if I'm spending money on a property, I want it to be within the units. I don't want it to be on the exteriors or on, you know, just basically kind of like the key, the key, um, the key systems, I should say, like, you, you know, uh, boilers or cooling systems or stuff like that, or the roof. So typically those dollars aren't like value add dollars. You know, if you have to replace a roof or replace a bunch of heating systems, you're not going to get more in rent. So just based on how commercial properties valued, you're not really going to be getting a higher appraisal or a higher sales price. You know, a buyer might feel better about buying it because they don't have to replace the roof for a while, but that doesn't translate to immediate value in net operating income. So for me, I love, you know, my absolute ideal project is motivated, motivated seller, just an aging landlord doesn't, you know, hasn't really kept up with the market. And, but, you know, 10 years ago, he replaced the roof. Five years ago, he replaced all the heating systems. That's not something I have to do for a while. And I'm looking at a building where, the systems and the exterior are all good. And I can just go into the units and put in 10, 12, 15 grand a unit, making them really nice. And then I can basically go and, you know, increase the rents by 30, 40, 50%. And um, because in those situations, all of the money I'm putting into the building are, is directly related to the, to the income that the building generates. So that's like the perfect deal. <laughs> this is a, this is a great point that you bring up. And, and I mentioned this on a previous episode. Um, I, I got an email from my property manager, on a property that I own without Rye during the show. And I'm like, there's certain things that we have to do to replace systems and stuff, stuff that I'm like just tired of hearing about, but I'm so <laughs> glad that I have a property manager to be able to do it. And not only that, like being that when we first, I first started getting into real estate, I never renovated anything. I was like, Oh, I, yeah. I'm just going to buy real estate and like hold on to it. And I'm so glad that I did. Cause it, this home is appreciated by a hundred grand, but not doing the value adds all of these things that you were mentioning up front to increase the value of the home, but also limit the maintenance is just a mistake that I made early on. So I think it was a good point to, to, to bring up there. So the next thing I think we want to talk about is we, you've done such a great job of explaining the markets, the properties, what you're looking for is, you know, people, this is an episode you go back and you listen to on repeat to get, to get, to write things down. Right. But now I want to talk about maybe specific numbers on a specific deal that you've done so that people can get a good idea and a good sense of something that you're buying, something that applies to them maybe in their specific market or a goal, a reach that somebody can look for and say, I want to do this one day. What does this look like in 2022 or whenever you happen to have bought the deal? So if you have a deal in mind, maybe just walk us through the numbers on it, what you bought it for, maybe renovation budget, what it cash flows, just give us the paint us the picture and we'll, you know, kind of ask questions along the way. So, so there was a six unit deal. Um, and this kind of touches on a lot of what we've already talked about in the show, which is why it comes to mind. Um, and the numbers on it are, are silly and hard to replicate. So I'm going to go ahead and say with an asterisk, but, uh, but this was something, this was a property we bought in the summer of 2019, or I should say I bought, I mean, it's, I say we, cause I, I always like to think of everybody as a team, but this is something we was 20 summer, 2019. Um, 
the young guy who was working with me at the time, who I kind of described at the top end of the show, young college kid, he was out there sending emails for me, getting in touch with owners, you know, kind of spearheading that component of our business. Uh, he got in touch with the seller. The seller came back and expressed some interest in hearing an offer, you know, jumping on the phone, chatting. So I got on the phone with him. He was a guy that owned a bunch of property in a different city on the other side of the state, um, you know, Keene, New Hampshire, for, for those who are, have any familiarity with the Northeast, Western part of the state of New Hampshire. It's kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, this was a property he owned in Manchester and it was the only one he owned in Manchester. So he's like, you know, I was thinking about selling. Um, so again, I'm picking up on the, the motivational bells are, are starting to ring in my head. Um, you know, he wasn't like an older guy, but he was, you know, he's in his fifties. It wasn't like he was some guy who was looking to retire, but, um, he'd owned it for, I think it was like seven, eight years. And from 2012 to 2019 markets changed a lot. There's a lot of growth there. That means he's got a lot of equity. Um, and he actually bought the property right after it was rebuilt from a fire. So he basically brought it turnkey and it was a really nice property. So we're working through the numbers. It's six, three bedroom units. All the units were renting for a low 1400s a month, which was below market, but it wasn't too below market. And he was just a little bit behind with what the market was doing at that time. So he wanted, I think it was 485 for it. Uh, he had no debt on the property and, um, you know, current market value at that time was maybe 650, 700 grand. So I was like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, a little tidbit, if a seller tells you that, that they're, you know, that they want a price that you're willing to pay, don't just take it. Cause the worst thing you can do is just say yes. Now the seller's immediately thinking, Oh, I could have asked for way more now, you know, now they have second feet, right. Because they're almost alarmed at how quickly you said yes. So for right. me, you know, that was something I got taught early on. I made that mistake a couple of times. Um, but so he's like, yeah, you know, at 480, you know, I think it was 485. And I said, tell you what, I'll do, I'll do 480, but I want you to sell or finance it um, because it'll save us a bunch of time. If you hold 90% of the purchase price as a, as a note, I'll bring 10% down. I'll, you know, we can put it a two-year term so you get paid off within two years. And for me, the plan is I'm just going to refinance this six months in after I raise the rents a little bit. Um, but seller financing is a great strategy. You can reduce your cash out of pocket. You can negotiate a really good interest rate and you have significantly less transactional costs. Like there's all these fees. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you talk, sorry, not to cut you off, but specifically on seller financing. And I, you may have been just a bit about to go into that, but talk about the, like the process of how this is a benefit to people. Cause I hear it all the time. It's like, Oh well, yeah, it was a seller finance deal. It was turnkey. And then, you know, I was able to get my money back. Like it's just, I don't think anyone's explained it on our show yet. So if you could kind of just elementarily walk us through that. Sure. So the high level benefit for the buyer is obviously you can bring less money down, right? So you can, you know, instead of doing a 20% down bank loan or something like that, you can do, you know, 90% loan to the purchase price from the seller. And then maybe you bring 10% down, or maybe they'll finance the whole thing and you bring nothing down. Right. I mean, it's all negotiable at that point. The other benefit to the buyer is there's significantly less transactional costs. So you don't have to pay for an appraisal. You don't have to pay for, you know, a lender's underwriting fees, attorney's fees, loan preparation fees. I mean, you still have to prep the loan docs, but oftentimes it's much cheaper to do it. You know, with the title company, it's 500 bucks versus maybe two grand, for example. Um, you can close a lot faster because you're not waiting for all the third-party reports a lender's got to do, you know, where they got to get the appraiser out. They got to get um, you know, a survey out to look at the lot or what have you. So you can close faster and it's cheaper from a transactional cost perspective. Uh, but you know, really the big motivation is less money down and you probably, you know, you can, it's all negotiable. Maybe you negotiate a 3% interest and a bank would have give you four and a half. So you save some money there. Uh, and then for on the sell side, um, usually the benefit is to a seller 
who is depending on the income from the property. And maybe they don't know what they're going to do with the money and they don't want to give up that passive income. So we're actually, you know, this is a different deal, but we're in negotiations with a seller right now who's in his late seventies. And like the, the income from this property is like kind of what pays his bills. Um, so we're structuring a seller financing deal to where we'll say, Hey, we'll hold this note for a few years. Um, you know, it'll get paid off. So you're going to get the money back in a lump sum at some point, but we've like reverse engineered the terms on the seller financing to give him the same cash flow that he was receiving from the property. And it still makes sense for both of us. And it's actually a lower interest rate than we get from a bank. So, uh, usually that's the benefit to the seller. And then oftentimes it's a, it's kind of a lever, you know, you can say, Hey, I'll give you your price, but you got to finance, you know, the purchase. And oftentimes sellers just want to know, well, when am I actually going to get, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to have this loan for 10 years or something. So you can structure the loan any way you want. And then you can just put in a balloon payment in 12 months or 18 months or two years. So they know they're getting their money back, but you're like in exchange for reducing my cash out of pocket to buy this, um, you know, and saving me some money on transactional costs and closing costs. I'm going to give you your price, but you got to finance the purchase for me for 12 months. So that's usually the benefit to both sides. Awesome. Thank you. I just, I always thought I was like, why would someone even want to do this? Right. I I want the cash like immediately for when, when something sells. Right. I just, some kind people of, like some of the sellers, they want uh, monthly payments too. And that's like part of what Axel I think is saying is that like a lot of times they're looking for the stability and the monthly payments. If they want to use that money to live off of for retirement, a lot of seller financing deals are done with people who are probably closer to that retirement age too. But I, I thought that that, that was a great breakdown. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's, you know, there's even more reasons behind it. There's some tax reasons, but you know, again, I, I'm always like, I'm not a, I'm not a CPA. So it's hard for me to really speak to that, but oftentimes you can get into a situation where if a seller seller finances a deal, they're, they're basically paying slightly less in capital gains. That's a whole situation dependent thing, but that's another potential, uh, you know, tip for us or a, a pro for a seller, I guess. But, um, so as for this deal though, uh, seller agreed, you know, he countered, he's like, I'll sell a finance, but you got to come up to 490. So a little over his price. And I was like, yeah, dude, no problem. Sounds good. So it was a little bit expensive from a, from an interest standpoint. I think he wanted 6.75, but it was still cheaper than like a private money or a hard money or a bridge loan. So I said, that's fine. I brought the 10% down and, um, and basically I was operating the property and I'd always planned on refinancing them out. However, I owned it for about a year, year and a half. And, um, organically raised the rents and I was going to go and, and, uh, and refinance it. However, we, uh, I just had a broker that I know up in the market. He, he, he brought me a buyer and said, Hey, this is what this buyer is willing to pay. And it was like mid nine hundreds. And I was like, yeah, dude, yeah, by all means go buy this. I'm not going to. And so at some point, and I think this is a whole nother conversation, but everyone likes to get into real estate and say, Hey, I'm going to hold forever. But at some point, like you got to sell, like you got to bring some money back in the business to fuel yeah. the growth of the business. So I was like, it doesn't make sense for me to hold this, even though, you know, I was netting like 25, three, you know, 2,500 bucks, three grand a month after paying everything and putting money aside and all that. Um, and I was like, it was really hard to give up that recurring income, but I was like a big lump sum gets me into 15, 20 units. Like that makes a lot more sense from a conceptual standpoint. So I ended up selling that one, but you know, I think that's just a, it's an example in just take your at bats in terms of getting in front of sellers. Like, you know, it was me and uh, this young guy, Isaiah, um, who, who was the guy that got in touch with this gentleman. Young guy. And, what is he like 12 or what? Like uh, <laughs> compared to yeah, the- <laughs> young, I was, I think I was 24 when we bought, you know, when I bought the place, he was like 19 in college, oh my just God. sending a bunch of emails out. Wow. And um, so I gave him a percent of the purchase price. You know, he, you know, he got made a good chunk of money for 19 and kind of saw it from start to finish. And, 
and all that. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a win-win and, and, you know, he learned the business through doing all of this and he was a you know young hustler that wanted to get out there and find some deals. So like, I think for, in terms of looking at the business, like you have to have an acquisitions pipeline, like you have to have all of these different places that deals are coming from. It can't just be one source or one person. You know, if it's like a broker, you gotta, you gotta diversify where the deals are coming from and just take more bats and make more offers. And I mean, we were probably making 20, 30 offers to get a deal at that point, but you know, you turn over enough rocks, you find a deal like that. And one deal like that, you know, it's just, that's a complete game changer. So, um, so that was that one. I mean, I could say, and then I can talk about the, um, the other one if you want, but I'll hit pause yeah, sure. there. <laughs> yeah. Should I just that jump was, right into no, it? No, I think, uh, I think we'd love to hear it. Uh, but you, you have my head spinning about just like the velocity of money and using, using the appreciation that you've have from specific deals and throwing them into bigger deals. I have a, uh, I was just talking about this duplex, like it's gained probably, and I probably have $150,000 worth of equity in it. And I lost money on it last year because of all the repairs. And I'm thinking like, Hmm, like, yeah, I normally make like 500 bucks a month, but I went a whole year without making money. Like maybe it's time to, to use that money to get into bigger deals. I'm like, just like the thought of, okay, well I can grow this two at a time or four at a time, but like, it's going to take a lot longer and I have to still like, play with this play in the small field, so to speak. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, but yeah. So, so I put up a, I did like a podcast, like a little quick 10 minute podcast with just myself talking into a microphone about this. And um, it's funny how, as you're, as you're in the business of real estate investing for a longer period of time, you very quickly realize how not important cash flow is from the perspective of it, making you it being something that actually makes you money. Like, you know, and I say the caveat cash flow is important because you can service your debt you get a margin of safety. If things go wrong, it's going to allow you to weather a storm if values come down. It's important in all of those respects, but like, it's not where you make money in real estate, like at all, you know, all of your money in real estate is made on the equity side. It's made in creating value through operations. It's made in buying at a discount. It's made in, you know, financing in an intelligent way. So you get the most out of your equity. Like the actual cash flow is just nominal. Like that's not really, that's not where people really make their money. And I always use the example of, you know, let's say you're looking at like a million dollar property. That's, it's a 10 unit, hundred grand a unit. You're going to make 150 bucks a door. So you're going to make call it a hundred, you know, $1,500 a month from cash flow from this deal. And those are kind of normal numbers after you put money aside for CapEx and pay your debt. But you know, so on an annual basis, you're only really making, I mean, what is that? Like 18, 18 grand, something like that, yeah, um, which is, that. which is, which is nice. But let's just say you bought that property at 10% under market. You bought it for 900 grand. You, know, you went to seller and you bought, you got a decent deal. Like that's not even a great deal. That's like a solid deal. So it's a good one. It's not, you can find way better deals than that if you put your mind to it. The day you close, you've created $100,000 in equity. Like that's seven years or, or you know, whatever it is, it's, or six years in, in cash flow. Like there's, they're so out of whack in terms of where you make the money. So for me, I was always so obsessed with holding stuff early because I never wanted to, to give up that, that comfortable monthly cash flow. And then at some point, you know, and you probably are at this point, Corey, with this duplex where you're looking at your return on your equity. You're like, I got 150 grand in this. And even if I make three, 400 bucks a month in free cash flow, like my return on my equity is like three, four, 5%. Like that's not a great return on my money. So it always oftentimes makes sense to sell that 
and keep, you know, keep stacking that into bigger and bigger deals or into deals that produce more in cash flow. Actually, you might literally make me sell it. And it's not. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I've always been of the mindset, like we got to get to 25 doors. Like we got to keep stacking these rentals. And I know for a portion of our properties, I don't want to sell because I know people, I literally know investors that are 60. They're like, damn, man, if I wouldn't have sold that one property or these three properties, like I would, you know, I, that property went up from $350,000. It's worth 1.2 million today. So there are those situations that I want to have as like my, like my own 401k there. But I think about properties that are losing money that it's with the property manager. Now it's not a headache to me anymore, but it's almost like I have this money sitting there. It's just, just sitting there. It is part of my net worth. That's great. The only thing that I haven't done personally is like, we don't have something that I want to directly throw it into. So it's like, I figure I wait until the deal comes along or we figure out what deal it is. But I think we've just done maybe a lack of networking in that piece to find that right deal. So, yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to touch on something you just mentioned um, where you say, you know, you have all these older folks that are like, Oh, I should never have sold. That would have been worth this now. Or they have the situation where they didn't sell and that property they bought for a couple hundred grand in 1995, they're selling for, I don't know, a million bucks now or whatever. And you're like, Oh, that's amazing. But behind the scenes, this guy owned that property and, you know, didn't refinance it as much as he possibly could have. And along the way, he had all of this equity where from a cash flow standpoint, he's only earning three, four, 5% on the equity because the market's appreciating and rents are, you know, they're still going up a little bit, but he's not keeping them up. And next thing you know, he's got $500,000 in equity on a million dollar property. And, and equity is dead money. Equity is, is money that belongs to you that isn't earning you a return. So, you know, one of the worst things people can do is pay down their mortgages early because you're sending your money to die because you no longer have access to it. Now it costs you money to get it. So, you know, for all of those guys that, that say that, I think that there's also a lot of examples of people that are hyper aware of how much equity they have in any given property at any given time. And as soon as they start, you know, th that return on their equity starts dipping, their cash flow maybe is staying the same, but they now have more equity. And, you know, they're like, all right, well, now I'm, you know, I'm only making call it 20 grand a year, but I have $400,000 in equity in this property. That's only a 5% return. The whole point is there's got to be other places for you to make more than 5%. So you got to be relentlessly diligent about tapping into that, putting it in other places. And that's where scale comes. Like that's where the real growth comes. Yeah. Um, so I, I always, I always love that take from older owners, but it's like, yeah, you know, you, you turn that 200 grand into a million, you probably could have turned that 200 grand into four or 5 million if you were just diligent along the way. Yeah. It's, um, I had like a come come to Jesus moment and I'm Jewish. So that's, that's crazy. But I had a come to Jesus moment where I'm like right now where I'm like, I'm playing the game, right? I feel great about where I'm at, but I'm, I'm well, in course. a fortunate, I'm in a fortunate position to talk to somebody like you that just needs to push me over that edge and whether or not I sell the property now, but it's like, that has now become an option in, in my brain. I'm like, I got to go find a better deal. We got to go find where this money can be better used. Don't, I want to thank this guy because dude, you have been talking about potentially selling this property. I just like, but it's your first one. My like, first investment property. How about that? And you know, you just, I'll give you the numbers on it. You tell me, I'll give you the numbers on it. I bought it for $125,000 in uh, January of 2020. Nobody knew what was going on with the world. Everything was safe. No COVID, right? <laughs> 125 grand. It's worth 215, 220, I owe 90 ish. So I'm like, maybe not quite 150 of equity, 130 of equity. Um, I've made $450 of cash flow my first year. Everything was good. I had to replace God knows what last year bathroom, this, that, the third, another tub. Um, you know, all the small things that you used to deal with. I lost about $300 a month. And this year, I'm we hired a property manager. So I'm probably going to make two or $300 a month, like as opposed to five or six is what I was planning. So I'm like, 
hmm, yeah, I could wait till it appreciates more, but then what? Like, I just figured, why not throw you that scenario? I'd probably know what your answer is going to be. You're going to be like, yeah. <laughs> like why I not? mean, that's, that's the route I'm going to go down for sure is, so if you're not netting any cash flow, it, it, you know, and, and let's call, you know, you got a property management company, maybe bringing in a couple hundred bucks a month. That's functionally in the grand scheme from a decision-making standpoint, it's essentially nothing, right? Like $200, I can't imagine changes your life that much at all in terms of no. your, your day-to-day existence. You're probably not rolling that into new deals, right? That's probably just paying for, you know, beers on a Saturday night. But we just it, talked about this, Axel. I don't mean to cut you off because I'll let you continue. Yeah. But we just talked about this, Ryan and I, and we're in a, a blessed, fortunate position, but we're like, if, if we're not, if something's not generating a thousand a month, like if it's not that number around that number for us, we're like, uh, I don't know. Like, is it worth, like, I don't, we're talking about taking, taking dividends from a different business that we have. I'm like, should we take it at 500? Should we take it at 700? And we're like, unless it's a thousand on each, on each sector, we're like, why it's not going to affect our life. And even a thousand is like getting to the point where we, it's not going to change it that much. So go go ahead, continue. So to answer your Mm -hmm. question, no, it doesn't affect my life at all, which. Exactly. And, And I think that's something that people oftentimes have a hard time doing is thinking in percentages and not just nominal dollar amounts. You know, you're talking a couple hundred bucks a month, you know, it lost $300 a month last year, you know, last year it's, you know, you have this dollar amount in equity. If you start thinking in terms of percentage return on the equity and consistently think about it in that way, you're going to be really alarmed at, you know, it's going to get loud pretty quick where you're like, all right, I'm making 2,400 bucks a year on 150 K like that that screams, there's got to be a better place for this money, right? And right now, so even if you didn't want to sell it, you know, let's say for some hypothetical situation, you had a ton of sentimental attachment to the property, you didn't want to let it go. I don't, but yeah. (laughs) You know, but yeah, I mean, I use that example as like an extreme, right? And so maybe you go and refinance it. And even if you can get a rate in the fours right now, you know, interest rates are going up and we're recording this, you know, mid-April. Let's say you can go, you know, still pick up, a mortgage in the mid forest. Well, it's likely that cash you take out of that, assuming, you know, you have the discipline to go throw it into something else is going to earn you more than 4%, right. Or four and a half percent or whatever you're paying for a mortgage. So even if it's not cash that, you know, even if you're not rolling all of that equity into another deal, you could probably still pull out 40, 50 K, whether it's a HELOC or a refinance or something like that, and go put it down on literally the same property, right. You know, maybe a bit smaller, right. Cause it's a couple hundred grand. You can go put that 25% down on another property and now you have in aggregate over $400,000 in property value. And let's say the market goes up 10% next year. You've created 40 grand in returns versus just the 10% that you're creating on 200 grand. So now right. you've gotten into a couple of properties. Now you're earning returns on multiple buildings. But the long, the long and the short of it is from a percentage standpoint, if you're making you know three grand on 150K, um, you know, you're, you're earning better money in the stock market. Right. And you're still, obviously you've experienced better returns because the market's been going up and all of that. But, uh, if you were to cash out that 150 K is 25% down on a, you know, a $600,000 property, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's maybe that's six unit deal you're talking about. Right. So oftentimes you do have to have the deal, you know, you got to have the, 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 the pipeline built so you can go put it into a deal. But, um, but when you, I think, so that's my take. I think when you start looking at it through that lens, you know, cause for me, the, the six unit deal that I gave an example of, I was making 2,500 bucks a month on it, which was like 30 grand a year, but we had 400, 450 K in equity. And I'm like, I, I don't want to give up that, you know, 2,500 bucks. I was 24. That was paying my rent down in Boston. Yep. I'm like, Oh, this is fantastic. But I'm like, all right, well that, you know, if I sell this, I'm turning this building into 15, 20 units. If I, if I spend it right. And then if I'm buying that, those at a discount, 
and I'm picking up the $2 million property for one eight or whatever it is, I just created $200,000 in equity, right? And that's, and then, you know, the cash flow becomes nominal and insignificant when you start thinking about it at that scale. Totally. And we have in, investors and, and uh, property managers in new markets that we'd like to explore that could probably help us find those deals. It's not like we don't have, we just have been focused on so many things. I think we could find the deal. I could find the deal. And uh, we have other properties that we own together that are doing much better, a much better return. So it's just interesting to, 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 conceptualize what you currently have and not just stack units just for the sake of stacking units. If the ones that you have exactly. are not optimized. So, and then, and, and then you could always just do a 1031 too, right? You go and, you know, you sell the property, you give it to an intermediary and then you got to, you know, you have 180 days to go find a property. And I mean, you guys, if you just, you know, put your head down for two months, you find a deal. I mean, it's, I, th I think that's like, I think if anyone just says, I got to find a deal in the next 60 days and they just put their head down and look for a deal, they find a deal and, you know, you got 60, 90 days to identify a few and then you roll it in tax free. Could do it two weeks, dude. Yeah, we definitely <laughs> a week. could. I, we bet I mean, we have a great, yeah. uh, an amazing network of people that we've interviewed. So like that, even that right there is like so someone to go to. Yeah. I, this is perfect timing. I want to parlay this into a question I was going to ask you, Axel, earlier on the show, but we've been talking about manipulating our portfolio, right? And, and we want to, essentially for us, I mean, it might change a little bit now that we've talked to you with like, I know multifamily wealth, like you've scaled to an incredible number of units, but we also have talked to people a lot about short-term rentals and having a small portfolio that pumps you a ton of cash flow per month. Just, can you give me your thoughts on the short-term rental market? And have you thought about dipping your toes in there? I know you've mentioned a couple of different markets. So, so curious on your thoughts on, on specifically short-term. Yeah, this has been like a huge thing I've been thinking about recently. So this is like really timely. Um, I have a lot of friends that own like luxury Airbnbs, like short-term rentals, and they they freaking crush it. And yeah. I look at the numbers and I get all this FOMO. I'm like, oh, it's so cool. They own this big house in Bozeman, Montana. You know, they got this ridiculous mountain view. They bought it for 800 grand. It makes 12 grand a month. They take all, they, you know, they make all this money. And um, I had a period of time, like six months where I was like really hardcore looking. I was actually looking down on the Cape um, for one down there to just do summer rentals. And I was also looking up in the white mountains in New Hampshire. And I just realized, I was like, I don't, I don't really have like the time or desire to really man the whole acquisitions process and to, and to own one. So for me personally, it was, even if I hire a management company, you know, it's still, it's, there's still time involved and a management company on the short-term side charges 25% plus. And that's kind of, that's a really big chunk of the money you make. So everyone I know that owns them, as investments, they manage themselves and they have some great systems in place. Maybe they got like a VA helping them out, but they're like, they're really hands-on on that side. So I think it's a great strategy for folks. Um, for me, it was just challenging because I was just so busy on the multifamily side. And I was like, my highest and best use of my time, what makes the most money is just going all in on multifamily. I'll pay for my vacations rather than going and staying at my Airbnb. But I think it's an immense strategy for folks that again, can find a good deal. I think where people are going to get in trouble and I have this whole hypothesis of like, there's been this gold rush to the vacation rental market and all of these big cities and all of these kind of touristy vacation destination towns. And people are just bidding stuff up on the MLS. They just bid it up. They, they buy it, they throw their furniture in there and they, and they put it on Airbnb and, and they, they make good money. But at the end of the day, goes back to the cash flow argument. Um, I think the money in real estate is made at buying at great prices, selling at great prices. Like that's where I fundamentally think people make their money. And I think that you can earn some unreal cash flow from Airbnbs. I just think you shouldn't pay to get there. And I think that's what a ton of people right now are doing. Uh, now, with that said, we are converting some of our properties into short-term rentals, um, small apartments, you know, studio apartments, one bedroom units. 
Um, we have somebody that's going to manage that process for us. That isn't our third party company because we don't have those systems built out yet. But I think that there's this, there's going to be a growing opportunity, especially in big cities uh, and especially Southeastern big cities like the Tampa's, the Orlando's, the Jacksonville's, you know, the Atlanta's probably North Carolina, you know, all these cities that everyone's kind of moving to for more just traditional multifamily housing to be furnished and then leased in shorter term intervals. Um, you know, so I think that there's, and, you know, remote work, obviously everybody knows that remote work has driven a lot of this. People can now bounce around, spend a month here and a month there in an Airbnb. But even outside of that, I think home ownership, the percentage of young folks, call it 18 to 35, that own homes is going to only continue to decline yep, because exactly. financially speaking, nobody can afford to buy a goddamn house that's in their 20s, like at all, unless you make really good money or you're living in a really remote area. It's like, it's so hard to qualify for housing from a, just from a financial perspective. But then also, you know, we're all kind of roughly in the same age. People want to be tied down less. You know, you buy a house, you've anchored yourself for three, four years, typically. So that rate Which is going to- inherently will drive up the asset prices, will it not? Yeah, I, I think so, because you have less buyers. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you would think less buyers, there's, there's, it's, um, you know, pricing might come down because there's less demand. But there, the, the flip side of it is, yeah, there's less buyers that are younger, but there's no supply being added to the market. Like that's a whole nother tangent. The US housing stock is- understocked by millions and millions of housing units. And that's like the biggest problem that faces housing in America is like, just, we're not building enough housing. So rents are going to keep going up. Prices are going to keep going up. So we're all fighting over just a finite amount of, you know, just a finite amount of shelter. So, um, you know, I think that is relates to Airbnb though. So we're taking some of our units, we're converting them to minimum 30 day rentals, 30 to, you know, call it 90 day rentals. And we'll take a longer booking if somebody wants to, but I think there's going to be this huge wave of people that want to preserve a little bit more flexibility. Um, you know, let's say that this unit is 1250 a month unfurnished. We think we can get 1650, 1750, 1850, depending on the finish of it, if it's furnished for an intermediate amount of time. And we think there's plenty of demand there. So I think that's going to become a much more popular trend is, you know, folks that own large apartment housing communities. You know, we just bought a 42 unit on Daytona beach. Um, which is not a touristy area. People think it is. I mean, you have a beach there, but it's not really like a tourist destination, but we're carving off six of those units, furnishing them and just doing shorter term stays, whether it's, you know, we post it on apartments.com and say, Hey, furnished apartment, 12 month lease, or, you know, we'll go down to a three month lease, but then we'll also put it on Airbnb for 30 day minimum stays. So I think that specific segment of the market, which isn't necessarily like vacation rentals, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of value there for like smart investors to kind of better monetize the properties they own. But from the vacation rental standpoint side, I think that if you're a really good operator and you're really Johnny on the spot with, you know, like, like, you know, you're, you're down to like, we put this type of artwork in our units because it makes it more Instagrammable. And then we get more bookings. Like, I think you have to be approaching it with that level of sophistication. And you also still have to be buying right just at a fundamental level. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, that was brilliant. So thank you so much. And I've been listening to a lot of uh, David Green, who we had on the show on episode 50, and he's also brilliant. And he was he was kind of talking about what you were mentioning about how this isn't necessarily a good thing what's going on. Now, for real estate investors, we feel like it may be good, but I'm not interested in the the gap between the have and the have nots getting bigger. Like that's I don't think that's a good no, thing for it's America. It's terrible, right? What's it's happening horrible. with housing, and I'm interrupting you, and I'm, you know, housing no, in America is a massive crisis, but I'll, yeah. I'll let you continue. And it's like, it sucks that it's not getting better. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think, what is going to be continued. And, but 
there's also to couple that with that is that the nomadic lifestyle that you're talking about of people that want to travel and move, they're less likely wanting to get into these assets, which if 90% of millionaires in the United States um, own real estate or from real estate, there's just going to be less wealthy people. And I think that that inherently increases that gap between the haves and the have nots. So it's like, it's a really weird position to be in. Yeah. There's a lot of money to be made, but it's like there's fundamentally it's, it's definitely an issue. And I don't see for, for real estate investors, it's a good thing, but it's not necessarily good overall. So I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, and I could touch on that too. I mean, for, you know, for example, Manchester, New Hampshire, which is, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast probably don't even know where that is. Right. It's just, it's a big city in New Hampshire. It's the biggest one. Um, it's not profitable to develop housing that you rent. Like it's not profitable to go build a, a affordable housing kind of working class, you know, C plus B minus class property. That you know, if you go build a hundred, um, let's say you want to go build a hundred units, it's probably going to cost you three hundred thousand dollars a unit to build that. If you can only rent those units for a couple of grand, you're losing money. Like it's not yeah. profitable to do that. So there's a lot of markets around the country that are supply constrained. You know, meaning it's just not profitable to build rental housing, and the only way it is if you get big tax breaks from the city or, you know, there's some kind of grants or something like that, that help to defray the cost. So for example, in New Hampshire, like rents in the last couple of years have been increasing 20 to 25% a year. Like that's completely unsustainable. Yep. Like a, a, a unit that was a thousand bucks two years ago is now 1250 today. Like income hasn't been growing at that rate. Like it's just becoming more and more, um, you know, just more expensive and it's not affordable for the folks that were, that are typically living in our properties. You know, for example, like Tampa, um, year of, and I was just actually looking at this data today, like year over year rent growth, uh, as of March of 2021 to 2022 was like 35%. Like, that's just ridiculous. Like that's just completely, that's completely asinine and ridiculous. And there's inflation is part of that for sure. just the money supply increasing, you know, obviously a ton of people are moving to Tampa, but, but that, that can't, that can't sustain. And there's, despite all of these people moving to Tampa, there's still not enough development to house all these people. So, you know, I think that, there's a huge affordable housing crisis in America. It's probably like one of my biggest things that I follow from like a political standpoint. And it's the only way it gets better is if the cost to build goes down and municipalities make it easier for people to build. It's, you know, we can yeah. talk about building in Boston. Like, I mean, that's just like complete brain damage. It's just not going to happen. And like, you know, rents in Boston from last year to this year, was one of the highest, uh, you know, one of the cities with the highest increase. Now Boston's the third most expensive place to live in the, in the country after New York and San Francisco. And it, there's no sign of that going down because it's just, you know, even though it's profitable to build in Boston, you can still build and rent and make money because the rents are high. The city is just not interested in making that process easy, like whatsoever. Yeah, this is so this is such an interesting topic. And I want to wind down the show because we've been talking for a long time. But I've been following I because we're big, bigger, getting bigger on social media. I've been following. We just started on TikTok and I've been following trends about just um real estate investors in general and the perception of them. And I think that there's a growing trend with the younger generation that there's this predatory. If you're a real estate investor, you're not a good person. And it's really interesting to me more so landlord than real estate investor, like just the terminology, but there's yeah. this growing trend that it's like this predatory system. And it's not the landlord or the real estate investors fault that the rents are increasing at this rate that is unsustainable. So I'm curious if you have a take on that. And if you think that the younger generation, Gen Z, and even before is just going to be priced out to the point where there's a really negative stigma with becoming a real estate investor, which is not going to stop us. Cause, because, we're here to take care of our own families, right? Like that's important. But I'm just curious if you think that that's like, 
if you see that happening, or if you think that there will be a, a leveling out as more people realize that it's such a great way to build wealth and it's still possible. Yeah. I mean, it's really tricky because when you look at it from a completely objective standpoint, you have no knowledge of real estate investing. You don't understand how real estate investors make money that, that you, you know, you're not kind of behind the curtain on that side of the business. And that's not something you're exposed to. You look at just where rents have been going. And, you know, if you're someone that lives in a thousand dollar a month apartment and your rent, you know, your landlord gives you an increase to 1250, like, yeah, your knee jerk reaction is like, what the hell, you know, like this is, yeah, I'm going to go on TikTok and I'm going to bash whoever this is. Like that's, from a very purely conceptual standpoint, that makes sense. However, you know, the, the layer of analysis further, right. And obviously you guys understand this being investors. I understand it being an investor. Um, just because, uh, you know, rents are going up. Doesn't mean like my property taxes aren't going up. My insurance costs aren't going up. My building costs aren't going up. My utility costs aren't going up. Like everything's going up behind the scenes. It's not like just the rents going up and now we're taking that money home. Um, and you know, I think, I think people forget that like rental housing, it's a business. It's a business like going to the grocery store is a business going, you know, uh, literally any, any, any business. It's just the same business. The product is just housing. Like that's the only fundamental difference. We look at when we renovate housing, we, you know, we call it putting out a great product because we're putting out a great product for our customer who is a resident who is living in our unit. And we do, we take that really serious. We pride ourselves on pretty, you know, clean, safe, um, good living experience where we respond quickly to maintenance. We want to make the whole process really great because we're like, fundamentally, this is a business. We're providing a service. People are paying us for the service and, and people forget, you know, especially, and I don't want to just generalize with the older population, but the older population looks at the landlord tenant relationship is significantly more adversarial. Oh, I yes. hate my tenants. Oh, they never pay. I, oh, I always, you know, I'm always a vi- And it's because they don't know how to run a goddamn business. And you would think, all right, if you were to renovate your properties, fix the water heater when it breaks and leaks for a week and they can't take a shower and, you know, you, you send pest control there when there's mice or whatever, like then it's not so adversarial. You're not so focused on cost cutting. You're focused on abundance and raising the income of your building. So I think that that's a dynamic that is, is um, perpetrated throughout, you know, just from the older generation to now the younger generation, because a lot of people live in a building with an older, older owner that is, you know, maybe self-managing and they're not, they just don't do a good job. So they look, you know, it's, it's a little bit more of a predatory relationship. So for us, I think we're really constantly thinking about, Hey, this is a product. How do we bring a great product to our customer? And there's nothing we can really do from the conceptual standpoint of landlords are greedy pigs. Like, you know, I, I saw a graphic on LinkedIn the other day, and, and this is something that's shared every year by NAA, which is the uh, the National Apartment Association, a, a massive data provider for like multifamily and, and apartments. And they literally produced a graphic that said, this is on average throughout the entire United States, how much the owner of a multifamily property or rental property brings in. And it's basically, you know, they break it down with a bar graph. They're like, this is how much goes to utilities. This is how much goes to property taxes, insurance. This is how much goes to repairs and maintenance, CapEx. And basically after all of that, the average rental property owner brings home 9% of their top line revenue every single year. And that's just the nationwide average. And honestly, I use that for underwriting oftentimes too. I mean, it, it ref, it's reflected in our underwriting. That's usually what it is. We bring home nine to 15%. Depending on the market, it could be lower. If it's a core market like a Boston, you're going to bring home five. You know, if it's Little Rock, Arkansas, you're going to bring home 15 and the average is around nine, 10. Hmm. So if more people understood that there would be less of a, of a screw the landlord type of mentality. If they knew that, Hey, they're only bringing home 9%. And the challenge is that 
so much of the real estate in the country is owned by individuals, mom and pop landlords, you know, uncle, uncle Joe or whoever. Right. And those people like can't afford tenants to not pay. Like the big owners can weather storms. They can weather stuff like COVID. They have, you know, 500 doors, a thousand doors, you know, the biggest ones, hundreds of thousands of units. Like they're good. Like they're not, they're not in trouble. Like if you don't want to pay rent in one of those units, that's an entirely different situation than not paying rent to a property that's owned by an elderly couple that owns, like that's their retirement. Like, and I think maybe if that was the reframe for a lot of folks, that would be, it would be a little bit different, but it's just like any business, you know, people go into Starbucks, they buy a coffee for five bucks and they're like, Starbucks just made five bucks off me. It's like, no, they didn't. They made like 20 cents. Like that's their net profit margin. They made like 10 cents probably, or whatever it is. Um, So I think, you know, reframing it through the lens of that is helpful, but I don't know how, I don't know how that is perpetrated throughout the masses. You know, that's a whole nother challenge. I just, just figured out, ask it was good insight. Did you have some, I, yeah, I know. No, sorry. We're I know we're going long tonight, but um, I want to, we skipped over the 24 unit and I just want to like just fire through that thing really quick because yep. we did promise it to people. We talked the six unit. Thank you. Can you just mm-hmm. walk us through the numbers quick of the 24 unit and then we'll wind down the show? Yeah. So this is with deal. Um, it was, I think it was May of 2020. We closed. So it was right after COVID or no, it was September of 2020. So it was during COVID, but, but basically I, I connected with an owner um, through a direct email. Same story as how I reached the owner of the six unit. And um, basically it was the perfect story. Older guy, late seventies, wanted to get out of the business, you know, 24 units, you know, four buildings. So it was two, six units, a five and a seven. And uh, he wanted to sell them all at once. And, you know, he wasn't ready to sell the first time I chatted with him, called him back in a month. He wasn't ready to sell, you know, calling him back the third time and, you know, basically did a song and dance for about six months, just following up with the guy, um, you know, put him in the CRM with notes to follow up. And finally he was ready to sell. And uh, he wanted, an average of about 80,000 unit across the portfolio, which was a really good price. And uh, his rents were comically low, but the units themselves were really nice. So it was again, perfect story of good exterior, good roofs, good systems. Units were like, okay, you know, we could put some money and fix them up, but the rents were insanely low. So he was renting like two bedroom units for seven, $800 a month that were like 15, $1,600 a month apartments, people that had been there for 30 years type, type of situation. So we structured it in a really, really interesting way. So I actually had him seller finance two of the properties at 80% loan to value. And I said, Hey, I'm going to pay you off in nine months. So I, I didn't give myself a lot of runway. It was a really short leash that I gave myself. I said, I'm going to give you your price, but you're going to sell our finance at 80% of the purchase price at 4% interest and basically save some transactional costs, save some fees. Um, and you know, I'll pay you off in nine months. And then the other two, I got private loans on from two different you know, individuals, one was an attorney in the area and the other one was a doctor in the area. I'm always networking with private lenders. And, um, I think one, you know, one was 9%, the other was eight and a point or something like that, but roughly 9% for both of those at about 90% of the purchase price. And part of that pitch was I said, Hey, I'm buying these at literally like 80% of today's current market value. If you were to list these, you go list them for hundred grand plus and sell them. Um, and I basically said, you know, if you're giving me a loan at 90% loan to value, like that's only 65% of the actual value. Um, you know, it's basically, it's different than that. Basically I'm getting these at such a good price. Your loan, although it's a high loan to value on the purchase price is actually a low loan to value based on the current value of the property. And then I use that same argument to get a couple of guys to give me second mortgages on both those deals as well. So basically I brought no money down to two of them and I brought uh, and then I, I think the other two, I was bringing about 20% to each of them, but I brought some lines of credit. So long story short, it was a $2 million deal. And I brought 
about a hundred grand to the table, which was, you know, obviously pretty much nothing down. And, um, basically five percent down essentially yeah and i so basically i I financed 100 percent of two of them the other two i was at 80 percent, but i pulled some lines of credit from other properties so i really only brought you know true like out of my pocket that wasn't debt five percent of the overall deal and by pulling all these levers creatively you know it's you get to do that and we put a couple hundred grand in it was you know maybe like 10 grand a unit into uh into the property and appraised at free two (laughs) like 11 months later. And it's, it's a, so the whole thing is it's all, I can give you that hundred grand right now. I can just sell this property. I'll send it over. I'll wire it tonight. (laughs) Hey, we'll do it. We'll we'll, we'll talk offline. Um, But it was, it was a situation where it was a perfect masterclass in, you know, all the value wasn't created through construction. It had nothing to do with the renovations. It had nothing to do with the money we put into the properties. It was just a masterclass in the value in multifamily real estate and just commercial real estate is all operations and management. It has not, you know, it has something to do with renovations because oftentimes you got to put some money in to get the rents up or something like that to see value. But we could have put zero dollars in and just released the units at a slightly lower rent, maybe twelve hundred bucks comparatively to fourteen hundred in one of the units, and we still would have made a ton of money because we were just operating it more efficiently and operating it, you know, better. Um, and I, I think that's if, if there's any takeaway for everyone that might be wants to get into multifamily real estate, it's like you're your value add is in buying at the right price day one and then operating at a really efficiently. And that is what creates the outsized value during, during the time that you hold it. So love it. I tried to rip through it quickly because I know we were going long. So no, I'll, that I'll stop was amazing. There, but... That was amazing. Um, let's get into the, the second to last segment of our show, which is called the core four. We'll do this a little bit rapid fire. Um, but before we do, okay. I have one last question for you. What do you say to people that say, you know, Axel, you're, do you say you're 27? Is that how yeah. you are? What do you say to people that say, you know what, Axel, this is awesome. You've built this massive portfolio, but you haven't seen 2008. You haven't seen a crash. You don't know what it's like to own real estate in a shit time. And I, I think about this in my own sense. I'm like, you're right. I don't what, not to be boastful, but I'm curious about what you think about that type of uh, event. And I don't foresee it happening, but I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know anything. So <laughs> I'm just curious what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. I say, Hey, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know what it's like, you know? And, and I was actually talking to a couple of guys that are more successful than me that are in their late twenties that got into this in their, you know, 2013, 2014. And it's only been straight up since then. And we were all joking. We're like, we're all just lucky. Like really, I mean, we worked really hard to get here and, sure. and, you know, we, we did the right stuff, but like, we're lucky. Like we got into this at the right time. Um, and, you know, I think that, all we can really do right now, and I, you know, I like to think about real estate and a lot of people say, well, why are you buying now? The market's so high. I'm like, real estate's about continuously participating in an intelligent way. That's all real estate is. You can't stop investing in real estate because all your connections go dormant. You can't, you know, you, you know, not regardless of what you think about it from a political standpoint, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the guy. Trump, when he, when he took a couple of years off at the height of his real estate business, he came back to real estate and he had a really hard time finding deals because he was just out of the game for two years. So you always have to be in the game. So if you're continually participating in an intelligent way, buying with good long-term fixed rate debt, that's where everybody got burned in 08. It was adjustable rate debt that shot up. Their payments were out of control. They lost the properties because they couldn't make their payments. So buying, you know, I, I ragged on cash flow. Cash flow is critical as it relates to, to weathering the downturns. Buying with cash flow, good fixed rate interest, um, you know, low interest debt. And having cash in the bank, that's it. I mean, it's the way really, really wealthy people go to zero is they don't have cash in the bank. They can have, they can be worth $10 million on paper. 
but you know, some tenants leave or they, you know, one of their properties is in distress. They can't float the balance in the interim and it goes to zero. That's, that's the number one reason people that are rich or wealthy lose their assets is because they don't have cash. So right now I'm selling a ton of properties. Like I'm selling a lot of our smaller two, three, four, five, six unit buildings. And I'm just sitting on the cash, which everyone's like, Oh, don't do it. You know, you got to put your money in something like you know, inflation. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll happily pay with the cost of inflation to not go to zero if the market adjusts. Like that's a great risk adjusted return. So for me, that's what I'm doing. As I continue to buy, we're also continuing to sell and I'm inc increasing and increasing my cash reserves. And I'm being really mindful to refinance out of any debt that is remotely risky into long-term fixed rate debt. Love it. Amazing answer. Thank you. So core four, um, same four questions we ask all our guests, get to know you a little bit more personally. Maybe you could um, give us some rapid fire here. The uh, first question is, what is your favorite business in, or a real estate investing book that maybe helped you along your journey? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, this is, has nothing to do with real estate. Um, I actually haven't really read that many real estate books. A lot of my real estate education has been like podcasts because um, it's all what works today, right? And obviously what worked yesterday still works today, but real estate is, especially now, really current events type type business. A um, $100 million offers by Alex Shimozzi. I don't know if you guys have read that book. Um, it's just it's just an insanely good book, but he's an insanely, insanely good digital marketer. And so much, I mean, so real estate is not a real estate business. Real estate is a sales business. It's a marketing business. It's a client and, and property acquisition business. It, you, you can nail the fundamentals of underwriting in real estate in a weekend. It takes a lifetime to master meeting the investors, finding the off-market deals, doing all that. So I pretty much all of the books I read are like sales related or marketing related. And his is the best marketing book I've ever read. It's incredible. It's changed a lot of what we do. So I, that's probably my answer. Can you reiterate the title, please? A hundred million dollar offers uh, by Alex Shimozzi. It's a big purple book. <laughs> it's like, it's 99 cents on Amazon. He basically gives it away. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it's awesome. Second question of the core four, this might be a little bit different for you and I'm not sure how far it's going to take you because I know you're, you're far in your journey here, but someone gave you an additional 50 K discretionary cash right now. How would you use it or invest it and why? Yeah, I'd invest it in myself. Um, I wouldn't put it into real estate. I wouldn't put it into the stock market. I wouldn't put it into any of that. I would, um, you know, I would buy online courses or educational materials that aren't, you know, not the $50,000 guru real estate course, but like, for example, if somebody sold a course on step-by-step -step exactly how to get in front of sellers to buy discounted off-market real estate deals, and it was like a thousand bucks, I would buy that course because the ROI on that is thousands of percents. It's not, it's not even quantifiable. So I would spend all that money on personal development, on educating myself in a very narrow niche, niche, however you say that. And, um, and just, like developing my skill sets that I can directly apply to going and making active income. I don't think you should be diversifying and investing your income in your, or your money into investments. until you have like a, like a high revenue producing business. Um, you know, I wasn't investing in real estate the first few years. I was, it was a business. I was finding greatly discounted deals and it was a lot of money going into marketing, training, all that stuff to do that. I think, I think that's what I would do with that money. Love it. Great answer. Question three, what's been your biggest mistake in your Real estate investing journey doesn't sound like you've made many, although I'm sure you have. Um, what's your biggest mistake in your investing journey and how have you learned from it? Yeah, I got, um, I got absolutely hosed uh, my third deal and I lost a ton of money. It, it, it was like a really trying time for me. I was like 23, 24 years old. I basically 
got into a deal that forced me to sell all the other properties I owned to pay to get out of that one. So I, I've had a, a pretty, pretty big catastrophic loss early on. And the real reason behind it was um, I hired two of the wrong contractors and they took me for a complete ride. So it was mm-hmm. basically just trusting the wrong people and assuming everybody has your best interest in mind. Uh, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. But the, the biggest risk to real estate investors early in their career is just getting taken for a ride by a vendor. That's your biggest risk. It's not buying it at the wrong price. It's not whatever. It's hiring a contractor that completely Fs up the whole job, but then you have to start over again because you can't afford to make those mistakes. Like those mistakes will send you to zero pretty quickly. So for me, like I look back at everyone that gets into business, I'm like, just don't get screwed for your first couple of years. And then you're probably going to be good. I got completely screwed by a bunch of people. I was way too trusting. I was young, naive, thought everybody you know did what they said they were going to do. And um, yeah, so that was my biggest loss. It was a house flip, but um, that's that's my takeaway. Work with the right people and pay to work with those people. I bet you're glad you went through that now looking back though. Yeah, I call it a maybe not tuition, Maybe not right? like the money you lost, but just the lesson <laughs> the lesson that it probably taught you. Like you you could have made it on a, a bigger mistake and a bigger scale. So everybody is going to do a bad deal. At some point you're going to lose money. It's going to, you know, even if you don't lose money, you're going to have lost emotional capital just dealing with it. So for me, it was that one. Um, and believe me, I, after that, I hired a manager. I never started. I never talked to GCs. I was never the one at the job site being at risk of being taken advantage of. And this is especially true for all the young guys, girls, whoever are listening to this. Like if you're in your early mid twenties, you are a target, like in any business, so much of your business is just not getting screwed, which is crazy to think about, but that's really what it is. That's a really good point to bring up. Thank you. Cool. Last question on the core four is a little bit of a thinker here, but what do you want your legacy to be? So kind of what's your why, what gets you out of bed every morning to do what you do? Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, it's probably just fulfilling my potential. Like that's really the only thing, like, you know, everyone's like, what, you know, what's your why with the real estate? I'm like, I don't have kids. I'm not married yet. You know, I don't have like the real pressing, like family, you know, motivations or the motivations to get out of a job or something. So for me, it's like, I, and it's not even about the money, like the money is whatever it's, it's a byproduct of just having fun participating in a game. That's really challenging. And for me, that's the only reason I keep trying to grow within the business is I want to face new challenges and I want to make my floor and my baseline a higher level. So, so for me, like I want to, you know, in five years, I, I, I want to just like not even look at any deals that aren't a hundred units. Like I want that to be my, I want that to be like a really small deal, a baseline, like tiny deal for me. And um, again, it's not the money. It's just, yeah, I, 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 at the end of the, at the end of the game, when I'm 65, seven years old, or whenever I'm trying to wind down and work less, I'm like, yeah, I really, it lurked my butt off. And, um, at some point, if you have a monetary, uh, result that allows you to take care of your kids and donate some money to charity and, you know, take your, all your friends you know, if it's a friend's birthday for me, it's like, I want to take my friend out and all of our other friends, I want to pick up the tab, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I never want to be worried about doing stuff like that. You know, I want to go take all my you know friends and family on vacations, stuff like that. So that's just kind of like the only real monetary goal, but it's really the potential. And I want people to be like, that guy really like, he didn't leave any of his potential on the table. Like he really, he really found what it was. Fantastic answer. Uh, incredible. We were flipped the scripts a couple of weeks ago and asked this question too. And I think you, you answered it very similar to how I hoped I would have answered it, but yeah. I don't think I was as eloquent, but I appreciate that. That was great. Love it. So still we trying did. to figure it out. <laughs> that's really the, that's the short answer. I'm not totally sure yet. That's um, isn't everybody. Isn't, isn't yeah. that what this whole thing's about? That's why we do the podcast. So we can help other people try to figure it out. That's, mm-hmm. that's really it. Um, We've made it to the last drop.
So in the last drop, um, what is, let's say you could go back to, <laughs> it's funny, you're like mid-20s, but like 18, if you could go back to eight, your 18-year-old self and uh, give yourself some advice based on the information you know now, what would it be? Oh, man. Um, well, from a deal, it would be work with the right people. But from just a life perspective, I think there's nothing, there's really, there's so little that separates the guys that are doing whatever level in business from the guys that are doing the other levels in business. And, um, you know, I, I think there was like a, the rock or someone, I, I forget who it was. It was some big celebrity who told a story about his dad in some interview. I was like, you know, I had spare time and I'm on Twitter watching this interview. And it was basically like, you know, his dad told him when he was, you know, in his seventies or something like that, you know, it, it, it was, it was tr truly brutal. You know, he worked in a factory or something like that for 40 years. And at some point it gets called up to the foreman's office and sitting across from the foreman. And you realize he'd spent 40 years working in this factory and he's talking to the foreman. And it was just the same exact guy as him, same education, same family from the same place with, um, you know, the same values, same level of intelligence, everything was the same. And he was like, that guy just thought he could do it. <laughs> and, and that's like a very, very simplified example. But, um, I've, I've been two years behind leveling up at every point in my business, just cause I feel like I can't do it yet. Like it's some arbitrary metric that's, that's holding me back. Like I would have done bigger deals at 24, 25, like instead of now, but I didn't because I was like, Oh, I just don't feel like I belong in this certain area. And I think that's a huge component with what takes people so long to get going in business is they never really feel like they belong or they have the education or any of these other dumb things. And there's really like, like, I know guys that own that are 30, that own like 5,000 units and they're just the same. They're just the same as all of us. Like they're not, they just were like, yeah, I, you know, we're talking about Dave Tupin earlier. Like he owns thousands of doors. He was just like, why can't I do that? And that was yeah. really the only differentiator from an intelligence standpoint. It's, smart guy, obviously, but he's not like rain man. Like it's the same thing. So, yeah. um, you know, I think that's a huge challenge, especially folks that are younger. They have a, it's a really hard muscle to develop. And I, I don't know, I tell myself to develop that muscle sooner. Well, I think there's a, there's a whole perspective to it that maybe I I'd like to shed some light on too. It's cause you're in the 1% of the 1% of the 1% of 27 year olds in my I don't even know if that's statistically possible, but in my opinion. So the reason why I say that is because, yeah, you could, there's always a, a somebody ahead of you always. Yes. Right. So at what point is it, is that is enough enough? Right. Like, and that's the way I would look at it. And maybe that has held us back in scaling because we have kind of this point where it's like, well, we want to get to this baseline, but maybe when we get there, we're going to want more, but when, will. when does that, 100%. you will. Right. And when does that stop? So as somebody who we're peers, but you're clearly on a business level way ahead of us, I would say that there are so many people that would love to be in your position. So you're all about the rooms that you're putting yourself in the rooms that you're putting. I was just going to say that, and I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but no, it stops. So the, the desire to keep growing, it stops when you stop surrounding yourself with people that are playing at the next rung. Like it's as simple as that. So if you're only hanging out with people that own zero units or zero properties, you, like you get to 10, you're like, Oh, I'm good. Like, but, but then you start going to some meetings where people own 30 doors, 40 doors. Right. And you're like, Oh, that guy's kind of the same as me. I can go do that. Yeah. So it's, if you keep incrementally surrounding yourself with higher and higher level players, you're right. There's always more, like there's literally always more. And you know, it's, you have to be really careful to not continually compare yourself to people that have more. Cause then you just get upset with where you're at and it's hard. You know, you always got to take a step out and say, in the grand scheme, I'm, I'm farther ahead or I'm, I'm where I should be. Right. Um, but I think that's where it stops is for me, I've, I've been really mindful about putting myself, 
putting myself in rooms with people that are farther down the line than me and around the same age, around the same attributes. And, uh, and that's the biggest motivator by far. Um, and it took me a while to do that. You know, I was buying 10, 15 units a year, which sounds, sounds like a lot, but I was kind of around people that own the same or less. And it was, you know, I joined a couple of groups where guys who were much more successful and then my business exploded. And it was, it was a direct correlation to them. <laughs> Dude, we're, I'm not saying we're doing it wrong, but every single person that's come on here and said, you got to surround yourself with people, like put yourself in those types of rooms. And they're like, that's the minute my business exploded. It's just wild. Dude, it's, it's so like- corny. I, I think, you know, I was the biggest, like surround yourself with the fight. You know, like I have all my buddies from college. We go out drinking on the weekends. You know, those are like my five closest friends, you know, or whatever that friend group. And it's, so I was always kind of like, oh, maybe that's not entirely, but it is true. And it sucks that it's such a, it's such a cliche, but like, it's so ridiculously true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I didn't realize how true it was until I was like, all right, let me go pay a couple hundred bucks a month to join this real estate mastermind group. You know, it's not breaking the bank. And there's a few guys in there, my age who were doing more. And I was like, damn, I got to step up my game. And it was just, you know, you're just around more. You just, you're just risen up to whatever the level is. So it's such yeah. an interesting conversation. I think it just, it's, I just think about people who still have a nine to five job and you're surrounding yourself with people that they're not majority are not entrepreneurs and they don't think and want to do bigger things. So for X amount of hours of your day, you're in the, you're like a, just another cog in the wheel, if you will. Right. And you're just, mm-hmm. it's like, all right. And then it's finding the time to go surround yourself from your, uh, five to nine, if you will, with those people that are, you know, have elevated their lives and their businesses. And like, there's always going to be an excuse, but I think like based on the system, it, it's hard for a lot of people to break free, right? That's why there are so few entrepreneurs these days. And it's just, it's just a hard argument and a hard conversation to have. It's like, I think it takes a certain person to have it with. Like some people, it's just like in one ear out the other, like it doesn't compute. And that's, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's- I just think about our, like we're, we still candidly have our nine to fives. And I just think about the eight hours a day mm-hmm. I spend with certain people and it's not a knock on them at all, but it's like, damn, like I'm not getting elevated. Like I, at some point I feel like I genuinely am the smartest person in the room. Even if there are people that are 10, 20, 30 years older than me, great. They've had different experiences, but they're not where I want to be. And it's like, am I real? Like how long do you stay in something like that? Whereas you can potentially leave that and dive all in and surrounding yourself with people that are way better than you at certain things. And they just, you get pulled up to that level. Right. And it's that, it's that fear of doing it. Right. And it's like, well, dude, it's like, like 90% of the people in my life have no idea about any remote thing about real estate. Like the vast majority of the people in my life don't understand real estate at all, but you can game the system by listening to podcasts of the people that you respect and just they're in your ear for two, three hours a day. And then you go to, you know, you, you stay disciplined enough to go to one to two meetings a week or networking events a week or something to, to, to game your brain enough to where you're with around, you know, around enough people that, are doing what you want to be doing or are doing what you're currently doing and kind of push you a little bit. But, you know, I don't think, I think the whole, like, I think I hate all the whole, the hustle, like the whole hustle culture on Instagram. Like you got to ditch your friends and you got to go. F-. I'm like, no, you don't. You just got to go yeah. spend a little bit more time around the people that aren't your friends. <laughs> like just make it's, a slight change and it's going to, it's going to give you some results. It's a great point. I went from playing video games when I got home from work or watching Netflix to, to interviewing successful people with, my best friend here and business partner and look at, there you go. I like that. And, uh, it's just, it's amazing how much it's accelerated our growth of success by just two days a week, one day a week, surrounding ourselves with people and like finding those diamonds in the rough that have just 
they're one in a million, right? You're like, think, I'm just, I'm talking about you. It's like, you're some random guy that's found super success in real estate. We've linked up with you. Now we're in each other's networks and we just, now we're motivated by you. It's like, holy shit, look what Axel's doing. He's an absolute stud. He's 27 and he's just done consistently the right thing over time and, and pushed himself. And that's something that we can learn from. And it's just, it's just amazing stuff. And I think it just goes to networking and, and I'll say it. We used to say this all the time. It's like your network is your net worth. And it is so true. It's a cliche and it's true. All of the cliches are true, <laughs> which is the yeah. funny thing about cliches is like, they're all pretty much true. We all <laughs> hear them enough that we just forget about them. We're like, ah, but it's like, nah, internalize that shit. Cause that, cause it really does move the needle. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Well, first of all, this has been an absolute pleasure easily one of my favorite episodes. And we don't say that on every episode, although we've had a lot of fun on these. Um, but if people are interested in learning more about you, uh, they want to follow your journey. They want to network. They want to learn how to buy multifamily properties. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Absolutely. So if you want to get on our mailing list, um, you know, I share value add newsletters and we, we send deals out to it as well. If anybody's looking to invest or partner with us, um, go to alignedrep.com um, and fill out a contact form there. If you want to connect with me, Instagram's probably the best place to do it at multifamily wealth. Um, or you can shoot an email to one of the emails on alignedrep.com. And then I also host the, um, the multifamily wealth podcast where we, we talk about mid to large multifamily. So for those that are looking to learn more about multifamily, I highly recommend you go listen. Love it. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed the show and like what you heard, please subscribe, share it with friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The more ratings we get, the more eyes we'll get on our show and in turn, we'll be able to provide you all with high quality guests. It's simple. Open your podcast app, type in our podcast name, The Weekly Juice, click on reviews and let us know what you think. Thanks so much and see you next week.